Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Burrell. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. This holiday podcast is called The Christmas Tree Ship and Christmas Tree Santas of Chicago. With this is Dr. Ted Karamansky, a history professor at Loyola University, Chicago, and author of at least a dozen books, many about Chicago and regional maritime history. Welcome, Ted. Thank you. And also with us is Captain Scott Smith, Senior Vice President of Marine Operations for Hornblower Group and previous captain on the Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac. Hi, Captain Scott. Hello, Helen. It's always great to be with you. Thank you. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. What's shaking? Hey, Helen. Greetings from sunny California. Ooh, excellent. Well, so Tyler um, has been a great partner on North Coast Chronicles. Fun to talk to, and actually, I like teasing him a little bit. One of the other hosts on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, who does the Blue Economy Show, called me to tell me that he so enjoyed our banter on North Coast Chronicles that he decided that doing his year in review show would be much more fun if he did it talking with you, Tyler. And I think that's very cool and very sweet. So um, how did that go? Well, it was, of course, an honor to be asked to do it by Admiral Gallaudet, and I thought it went very well. I personally had a great time, and it was fun to go through kind of a year in review of what, what uh, he covered on his show in 2021. Well, he was so interesting. He, he was driving somewhere, and he called me, and we had this long conversation about the work he's doing and stuff going on and the podcast and how much he enjoys it. But it was interesting because he, he said, I really love what you do with Tyler on your shows. I can't believe how you choreograph it all. And I'm like, well... We don't choreograph it at all. I mean, it, I just throw whatever at Tyler, and Tyler just bounces back and, and does such a great job. And I will say it really is just a pleasure to do it. Um, and I was thought it was very, um, it said a lot about you, Tyler, that he wanted to do something with you, too. So um, perhaps that's a whole nother career for you as well. Well, that's very kind of you, Helen. So on this show, um, it, we don't have a year in review, but in thinking back on our first six podcasts, I really am grateful for the opportunity to work with you, Tyler, and the American Shoreline Podcast Network, and to share my love of the Great Lakes through North Coast Chronicles. I don't know if anybody has listened to every single podcast other than you and I, Tyler, and my sister-in-law, Linda, but people often reference one or another of our shows, which is very rewarding. One of our previous guests, Belle Bachman, mentioned she would never pass up an opportunity to talk about the Welland Canal. Well, I feel the same about every chance to share about the wonderful Great Lakes resource. I'm an admitted Great Lakes scale, and I hope that Tyler is starting to feel like a Great Lakes guy. No doubt about it. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today was established to support the success of shoreline professionals and empower an informed coastal citizenry, illuminating diversion viewpoints among coastal interests and advancing the understanding of our vital ocean and inland resources. North Coast Chronicles, as well as other shows on the network, rely upon advertising and sponsorship to keep coastal news and entertainment in the forefront. Please consider supporting any of the great catalog of shows on ASPN by contacting us at coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. Today's podcast, let me give you the facts up front. So once upon a time, I worked at the Chicago Port District, which is one of 19 public port districts in Illinois. The Port District is really a subset of what you might consider the greater port and harbor of Chicago. It's probably no surprise that Chicago was founded at the mouth of the river on Lake Michigan by an 18th century fur trapper. 
that river, subsequently called the Chicago River, set the stage for Chicago becoming a center of commercial shipping. Now, what that shipping looks like today has changed over the years, and that's really kind of a conversation about the evolution of the national and international supply chain. But in any case, Chicago was a distribution point for fur traders from the upper Midwest. Later, Midwestern farmers and lumber producers, producers shipped their products east from the port of Chicago. Chicago's geographic location affords it the ability to handle waterborne commerce via the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway and with domestic shipping by barge down the Chicago Sanitary and Ship Canal and the Illinois River to the Mississippi River all the way to New Orleans. Until well into the 20th century, most cargo was handled right on the Chicago waterfront and along the Chicago River. Today, the ships that come to Chicago via the Seaway go to terminals on the south side of Chicago, on and around the Calumet River, where I worked. Our loyal podcast listeners have been learning bits and pieces of the history of shipping in the Great Lakes. On our second podcast, I interviewed my brother, Captain Russ Broll, who talked about being a freighter captain on the Great Lakes. And on our fifth podcast, called The Great Portage of 1829, we talked about the building of the Welling Canal around Niagara Falls, while acknowledging that numerous Indian tribes inhabited and traversed the Great Lakes region long before the arrival of French explorers in the 17th century. Commercial shipping, even international shipping, on the Great Lakes has been going on for a long time. Over the past 100 years or so, domestic shipping, or the carriage of cargo around the Great Lakes, without ever leaving the Great Lakes, tends to be iron ore, taconite, grain, salt, and other bulk cargoes. The trade of Christmas trees from the Upper Lakes to Chicago is a very interesting story, one that started in the 19th century and continues today. As I noted, Dr. Ted Karamansky is a history professor with Loyola University, Chicago. When I lived in Chicago over 30 years ago, I was on the board of the Chicago Maritime Society, and Dr. Ted was well-known even back then as an expert on Chicago maritime history. What I only recently learned is that he is an expert on lighthouses as well. In our last podcast, The Silent Watchkeepers, Lighthouses of the Great Lakes, we talked about how Michigan had more lighthouses than any other state. Dr. Karamansky, without diverting from today's subject too much, can I ask you, I drew you to the subject of lighthouses in particular, and do you have a favorite? Well, Helen, back in the days when we were working together to create a maritime museum in Chicago, an effort that did end up taking about 30 years, <laughs> um, we did an exhibit on uh, lighthouses of Illinois uh, at, uh, at that first maritime museum we were able to develop at, uh, at the North Pier. Uh, and so that, that first got me interested in the subject. But uh, my most recent book, uh, Mastering the Inland Seas, about lighthouses on the Great Lakes, um, that grew out of an effort of the National Park Service because, you know, they're getting rid of all, they're decommissioning the lighthouses um, and some are being uh, sold off, others being uh, given to uh, local historical societies. But in the course of doing all that, the National Park Service has a responsibility to make sure that any historic landmarks aren't going to be neglected. And so I did a project for them to determine how do you determine if a lighthouse has something to do in an important way with the history of the nation? Wow. Well, um, congratulations. Um, I'm not surprised that you got the job. Um, I think we learned in our last podcast that there's about 700 lighthouses in the U.S. And I did note also that uh, on the Coast Guard website, you can Google it, there is a list, an alphabetical listing of every lighthouse uh, in the United States. 
And we did also learn um, about how you could buy one and the challenges of buying one, the historical responsibilities, um, and at least two lighthouses that are being now managed and um, uh, restored by the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association. But thank you for that work. Well, you know, the subject comes full circle on the show because I know Captain Scott Smith from his past life in the Coast Guard when he worked at Coast Guard headquarters on aids to navigation. And what is a lighthouse if not an aid to navigation? Captain Scott, um, I want you to know that at the last show, I did give you and all of your colleagues a shout out in federal government who work domestically and internationally to support the safety of navigation in U.S. waters, you being one of them. So having sailed the lakes and having seen a lot of lighthouses from the water, do you have a favorite? I actually have two. Um, and one is Split Rock, right, uh, Split Rock Lighthouse uh, up in Lake Superior in the western end. Uh, I just think uh, it's a majestic lighthouse that sits on that cliff. Uh, overlooking Lake Superior and just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and the other one is Marblehead Lighthouse in Ohio. And that's for more purple personal reasons as I proposed to my wife uh, at the base of that lighthouse. So. Oh, so there's a romantic story to it too. That's so sweet. How nice. Yeah, I've met your wife. She is uh, a dear and that, that's a lovely story. Now, when I lived in Chicago, I learned of a famous artist named Charles Vickery. Charles Vickery was an American painter best known for his realistic depictions of historic ships in the open ocean and crashing waves in all types of weather and times of day. And also, um, he did a lot of Great Lakes uh, ship pictures. Now, one could buy prints of his paintings back then, and he would sign his name in addition to the printed version. At that time, I purchased one of the Christmas tree ship of Chicago. And it's a print that I have framed, and every holiday in December, I take down whatever I have on the mantle, and I put that painting up, and it is there today. And I am so charmed by this painting. But it also um, just evokes a lot of um, curiosity about the Christmas tree ship. I mean, what is it? And why is it magical? Uh, and what is the folklore around it? And so so, so thanks to our, our, our guest today to help us kind of venture into that for the holiday. Dr. Karamansky, can you tell us a little bit about the history, perhaps, you know, the schooners, and how did this all kind of happen back in the 1800s? Well, it came about initially, it's near the end of the sailing ship era. Uh, you know, schooners were sort of the covered wagons of the Great Lakes frontier back in the early 19th century. But by the time we get to the 1870s, uh, steam vessels uh, are beginning to uh, erode the importance of schooners. Back in 1873, there was a major depression, uh, the Panic of 1873, it was called. And a lot of the owners of these uh, uh, schooner vessels uh, came up short in, in making enough revenue to, to meet their costs. And so several of them undertook late season voyages with either potatoes or Christmas trees. Uh, for one last chance to kind of balance the books. And that's the beginning of the Christmas tree story uh, on Lake Michigan. Wow. Well, you know, um, got to be got to be creative in the maritime business, right? Um, marketplaces change and uh, things change. Um, so were there like a whole slew of schooners that got into the business? Yes, that's true. Um, and of course, uh, Christmas trees were brought by schooners to other places than Chicago. To Milwaukee, uh, to Cleveland, uh, and, and so forth, uh, on an intermittent basis. Uh, but for Chicago, beginning in 1876, it was pretty much an annual thing. 
1876, the schooner that brought uh, Christmas trees to Chicago was uh, perfectly named the Reindeer. Oh, that's pretty charming. So when the when these um, ships showed up and they were full of Christmas trees, I mean, did they sell them off the boat? Was there a distributor? Um, how did they get out and about? How did people buy them? Yeah, the basic idea is the ship would uh, dock uh, on the Chicago River, and eventually Clark's the Clark, Clark Street Bridge became the place where this was uh, most frequently done, uh, and they would sell the trees from from the deck. Uh, also, they would hire uh, young girls uh, to take some of the trees apart and make wreaths, and then they would sell Christmas wreaths also from the ship. And after a while, this became quite a tradition uh, to go dockside uh, and shop for a wreath uh, or bring your kids down for Christmas to buy a Christmas tree. That just sounds so nostalgic and sweet. What a great story. Now, where, like, was there certain places on the Upper Lakes or where in particular did they pick up these uh, trees? You could get them at a number of places. The Door Peninsula was one location. And uh, the upper peninsula of Michigan, uh, particularly the far northern shore of the lake around the harbor of Manistique, Michigan. So, so were these ships like independently owned? Were they you know, owned by one company or independently owned? How were they kind of managed? Yeah, these were ships that were independently owned. Uh, and it was not uncommon that uh, someone who wants to market say Christmas trees, uh, would uh, actually rent a ship uh, for this for one voyage and take it up to northern Michigan, northern Wisconsin, get the Christmas trees, come back down, sell them from the dock, dress up like Santa Claus <laughs> uh, dockside. Um, but it wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily own the vessel. Uh, they might have just leased it. Yeah, like a modern day charter. You know, just uh, yeah, renting the space, and then but they would they would rent it with the crew and the captain all together, right? Uh, or they would recruit their own crew. Uh, sometimes the crew were people who were also tasked with cutting down the Christmas trees. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so when they would go up north, um, were theirs? I mean, we're talking about schooners, right? So they're um, like, how big are we? We kind of thinking, how long? We're talking about a vessel about 125, 135 feet in length, uh, usually three-masted. Uh, and of course, it's a schooner because the sails are set parallel to the hull, as opposed to when you think of a classic uh, ocean-going vessel, where the sails are set from spars perpendicular to the hull. Oh, okay. Thank you. I mean, when you see a schooner and they say it's a schooner, it looks exactly like you're talking, but I think we forget to like define it. And you know, a lot of people look at a sailing ship and think they're all the same, and we logically know they're not, but we don't define it. And so, why did schooners? Do you know why schooners in particular worked well on the Great Lakes? Yes, um, it had a lot to do with both economy and sailing conditions. Uh, schooners could sail very close to the wind, particularly with a with a good centerboard to help keep them stable when they were uh, tacking uh, against uh, against the wind. But also because the main sails of a schooner could be set from the deck, unlike in a, uh, a square rigged sailing ship, your men have to go aloft and crawl out along the spars and let the sails drop down or bring them up. 
this all could be done from the deck on a schooner, so you needed a much smaller crew. Five, six, seven people would be more than enough for a schooner, whereas if that was a square-rigged vessel, you're talking 12, 15. Oh, yeah, that makes so much sense. Now, were these, did they have like a, like the the hole, the, uh, the, the, the hatch or the, you know, the, the hull and the, the hold, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. The hold um, is, were they just like lo- lowered down into the hold? Um, and how did they do that? By just literally in the old days, they didn't really have cranes, right? So they were literally just lowering them down or did they literally just wrap them and throw them or how did they load the ship? Well, certainly for the, yeah, certainly for the Christmas trees, they're just jamming them into the hold. Uh, and uh, Christmas tree ship, in order to make it uh, an economic venture, they every inch of that hole, uh, hold would be full of trees. And then oftentimes they would lash uh, all available deck space with more trees. Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. It's like if, um, if folks look at container ships, you know, the ship, you know, you see them and they all seem piled up. They all go down into the hold, but then they pile them up on top as high as they can go, uh, feasibly go. Also, just it's all about taking advantage of the space that you have. Now, did they combine cargoes at all, you know, do you know, with the Christmas tree ships? Or did they really just, for the most part, when it was Christmas tree ship time, that's what they did? It was pretty much just Christmas trees. Now, another way to, in a late season to maybe make a little money, particularly if you owned the vessel, you might also go up to northern Michigan or Wisconsin and with a load of potatoes and take that into a, a city and then just dock your vessel. And over the course of the winter, sell your cargo of potatoes to various restaurants uh, who uh, would require um, that vegetable. But uh, Christmas trees, it was mainly... Uh, uh, with Christmas trees, it was it was it was mainly just Christmas trees. So, if they went up to the Upper Peninsula or UP, I mean, where did they dock? I mean, they're, I mean, these are sailing ships, and was there? How did they do that? Did were there like a port area to go into? Sure. Uh, in the case of uh, the famous Christmas tree ship, the Rouse Simmons, uh, she she went ahead and went from the Chicago River north. Uh, to Manistique, Michigan, where there was a crude harbor that had been uh, roughed out by the Army Corps of Engineers after the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, all along the Great Lakes, there really were no harbors of refuge or even small commercial harbors. Uh, And the whole conditions of docking in various places was extremely difficult. Uh, But after the Civil War, the government really got into uh, seriously improving navigation safety. Uh, so they were able to dock uh, at a regular, uh, uh, in a regular harbor at Manistique and send the men out into the forest to harvest the trees. Wow. I, I love the historical sense of timelines on the development of, uh, of uh, our waterfronts, certainly in and in the Great Lakes. I didn't even think about that timeline, Civil War, post-Civil War, where we started to really think about our, our uh, formal uh, navigation projects and Army Corps developing the ports. So that's, that's, that's actually very interesting. Um, so you mentioned the Rouse Simmons. Um, the Rouse Simmons does have a lot of history around it and a lot of folklore around it. Why does the Rouse Simmons stick out of a Christmas tree ship? Well, she was one of the last of the Christmas tree ships that uh, would make the voyage. 
from Chicago all the way up Lake Michigan, the entire length of Lake Michigan, of course, well over 200 miles. Um, she would go for her voyages. And tragically, in 1912, um, uh, the vessel perished uh, in, in making that. Uh, pretty much after that, there were a couple of other ships that were chartered after that, but uh, they then began to bring the Christmas trees in by train, by rail, and then load them onto a vessel uh, just to kind of keep the pretense of the tradition alive. So she's kind of known as the last of the Christmas tree ships. And was there a, a, a captain, a specific captain of the Rouse Simmons? Yeah, the, the man who chartered the Rouse Simmons uh, was a fellow by the name of August Schunemann, uh, an immigrant uh, from Germany uh, who had uh, deep roots uh, and experience uh, sailing the Great Lakes. Uh, he had many times been master of his own vessel. Uh, in the case of the Rouse Simmons, however, he chartered that uh, along with its captain, uh, a Captain Nelson, uh, and uh, the two of them uh, undertook this last voyage in November of uh, 1912. 1912. So the schooner was still operating in 1912. Absolutely. In fact, the last of the Great Lakes schooners uh, was uh, that was really in commercial use as opposed to some kind of recreational use uh, was uh, the vessel Our Sun. Uh, which uh, lasted on Lake Michigan till 1933. That, I find that amazing. But I guess if it's working, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So um, that's really interesting. So um, Captain Schooneman from the Rouse Simmons, um, I read that he was kind of known as the Christmas tree Santa. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the way the, uh, the local newspapers portrayed him. Um, and he seems to have relished the role as well. So give me an example. Like, I mean, you talked a little bit about they would dock and then people would come to pick up trees and wreaths. Um, but like, give me a sense of a, a little bit of the, the, the celebration around that um, and, and uh, a bit of that, I don't know, the history. What did it mean? I'm just trying to get a sense because to me, it's, it's, it's um, you know, kind of a charming part of the past. Because um, I'm trying to trying to understand because I it's kind of come back a little bit at least symbolically, um, in today. So is there a sense of you know what Chicago was like? I mean, you know so much about Chicago and Chicago history and Chicago maritime history. Like, where did that fit? Do you think within Chicago maritime history? One of the things uh, about the Christmas tree ships, I think it's useful to keep in mind, is that it's part of the evolution of Christmas becoming a major holiday. Uh, the, Pur the Puritan founders uh, of uh, much of America frowned on the idea uh, of any kind of celebration uh, of Christmas. Uh, and so it was German Americans who brought the tradition of the Christmas tree uh, to the United States. And so it's uh, significant that the Schunemans were German immigrants. Uh, who, would, who saw this opportunity uh, to popularize the use of Christmas trees uh, as a symbol of the season, uh, and then, of course, <laughs> find a way to make money off it. It's really a lovely story, um, and how, you know, the, the immigrants brought the Christmas tree tradition, um, and how that kind of evolved out of the Christmas tree ships and trade uh, in Great Lakes shipping. Um, I'd like to ask 
Captain uh, Scott Smith with us. And Captain Smith, before I ask you a little bit about how you became a modern day Christmas tree Santa, tell me a little bit about your work um, um, with the U.S. Coast Guard. I I met you, as I said before, um, when you were in Washington, D.C. We kept up the friendship. When you began to captain the Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac, um, and I'm grateful that we keep in touch today. But tell me a little bit about um, your work and then how you tell me. Then we, I want to talk a little bit about the Mackinac. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started back in uh, 1990 after I graduated the Coast Guard Academy. I uh, was serviced uh, in the Coast Guard uh, up in the Great Lakes. Uh, I was on the Bramble as a junior officer, which is a buoy tender out of Port Huron, Michigan. Uh, and then after that tour, I went to Cleveland, uh, which is the Great Lakes headquarters uh, for the Coast Guard. I uh, worked in the Aids and Navigation Office up there. Uh, and then went uh, executive officer up in Duluth, Minnesota on the Sundu, uh, which still applies the water up there, although I in a private capacity. Uh, and then uh, ventured off to different places within the Coast Guard and eventually came back uh, to the Coast Guard or to the Great Lakes uh, as the commanding officer of the Mackinac. Uh, but uh, after that, I went back to headquarters. Uh, as my wife said, to serve my penance uh, for being afloat. Um, and uh, my position there over the last six years uh, was very in-depth involved with uh, AIDS navigation, uh, bridges, uh, really the marine transportation system uh, within the U.S. And, of course, obviously uh, here in the Great Lakes. Um, uh, I was also the U.S. Consul to Ayala, uh, which is the International Association of Light, uh, AIDS Navigation and Lighthouse Authorities, which I know that you mentioned on your last podcast, which I did listen to. Uh, which is very important about lighthouses. Um, so that, that you know, bring me full circle um, from really starting my career um, servicing age navigation uh, and then ending my career being uh, the, the chief of navigation for the Coast Guard uh, and then responsible for uh, the navigation, uh, age navigation, as well as multiple other um, marine transportation uh, uh, efforts. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for your service. And uh, it can't be said enough um, that, um, these folks kind of behind the scenes who are taking care of our the safety of navigation in U.S. waters, um, it, it, uh, it's not just the safety things, it, it also keeps our environment safe and protected. So thank you so much for that. Now then, you went on the Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac, which I think is the biggest Coast Guard Cutter in the Great Lakes anyway. Um, tell us a little bit about the Mackinac and, um, and then and a little bit of brag on some of your firsts that you did on the Mackinac. Oh, absolutely. So, um, so Mackinac, the current Mackinac is the second Coast Guard vessel uh, to have that name. First, uh, of course, is the uh, very historic, very important uh, Cutter Mackinac, which would be the WAGB 83, which is a currently museum uh, up in Mackinac City uh, and probably incredibly famous uh, throughout the Great Lakes. Uh, and her sole mission was uh, uh, ice breaking uh, in the Great Lakes. Um, and she was decommissioned in 2006. Uh, built for um, World War II, built in World War II um, to help uh, facilitate uh, commerce uh, and goods uh, being shipped uh, from the Northern Lakes down through uh, the St. Mary's River uh, down to ports, both uh, Lake Erie and uh, in uh, Lake Michigan, to make sure our steel uh, was available to uh, build uh, wartime uh, requirements or meet wartime requirements. Um, the new Mackinac was commissioned in 2006. Uh, she is uh, WLBB 30, uh, and uh, she uh, is a uh, not only the largest uh, 
um, domestic icebreaker we currently have. She was a little bit smaller than the old Mackinac, but she was very different. Now uh, the old Mackinac, um, somewhere around 12,000 horsepower. The new Mackinac is uh, roughly uh, 10,000 horsepower, and she is as a pond driven, uh, so very uniquely uh, uh, different than anything else in the Coast Guard, really in the um, military service side of the U.S. today. As a pod, uh, or basically, if you think about the forty-two hundred horsepower um, motors that can rotate three hundred sixty degrees uh, at the stern of uh, the vessel, makes her incredibly maneuverable, uh, both uh, from an ice breaking perspective uh, and, and ship handling perspective. Uh, so she is very unique; has an integrated bridge system, all, all the bells and whistles of a modern day bridge uh, up uh, up on her uh, up on her uh, bridge for her crew to uh, control her. You know, I when I lived in Chicago, I got on the old Mackinac, but I have to say I haven't been on the new Mackinac, which I find kind of interesting. I don't know why that happened that I haven't been on it. Um, but um, uh, she is a beautiful ship, I have to say. Uh, and the re- reason I asked Captain Smith to talk about, a, a, you know, a, a, you know, some of his uh, first is that when he was on the, the Mackinac, he went into, I've Folks, on my previous podcast, I mentioned that I'm from the islands in Lake Erie, and uh, I'm from Middle Bass Island, and next door to Middle Bass Island is uh, South Bass Island uh, and the Bay of Putin Bay. And Scott, I think you were the first person to bring the Mackinac in, right? I mean, you might have had an undercoat clearance of inches. I was, uh, you know, th- thankfully, uh, and, and through proper planning and, and, uh, and Mother Nature helping us, uh, we were in a very high state uh, of, of lake level. I think we we're plus 14 inches at that point, which allowed uh, allowed us to go in uh, and uh, moor up in, in uh, Putin Bay on South Bass Island, uh, not twice. So you know, I had the distinction of bringing the largest vessel into that port uh, that, that you could possibly get in there, and we did fit like a glove. Um, and but uh, it was very honored to do that. I've sailed uh, all the four Great Lakes uh, on that vessel. Did not get into Lake Ontario, which I wish I would have. Uh, that vessel had been on others, but. Uh, yeah, it was uh, having that vessel uh, was a very unique opportunity. Um, how many um, icebreakers does Coast Guard have in the Great Lakes total? Uh, it's seven total. Uh, actually, if you count the two twenty fives, there's a, uh, nine total. Uh, there's six uh, one hundred forty foot icebreakers, uh, the Mackinac, and then two two twenty fives. Uh, one home port in Port uh, Huron, Michigan. The other one home ported up in Duluth, Minnesota. You talked about um, how unique the Mackinac, the new Mackinac is. Um, and how um, uh, efficient it is. But uh, have you ever been stuck in the ice? Uh, I've never gotten stuck in the ice. Uh, the ice has stopped us, but didn't, didn't uh, necessarily make us stuck. Uh, so I have uh, uh, had conditions even on the, uh, the new Mackinac that uh, uh, did stop us. We just had to back out. And, and uniquely enough, uh, she breaks ice back better backwards than forwards. Uh, once you put, put that, uh, those blades into the ice, uh, and chew that up. Uh, she she makes uh, slushies uh, come out the other side, and uh, she does a wonderful job uh, in close and impersonal uh, breaking the ice. So, why do we need uh, ice breaking? I mean, when the Great Lakes in the wintertime, it just shuts down, right? Isn't that the case? I mean, wouldn't you just leave it alone and wait till it thaws in the spring? Why do we need icebreakers? It is definitely not the case. Uh, so, the breaking. Moving commerce on the uh, the Great Lakes is a full time twelve month of a year uh, proposition. Uh, the locks do close uh, up in you know, both the Welland, uh, which you discussed before, uh, and the Sault Ste. Marie, the Sioux locks. Uh, those close, but there is shipping um, on the lower lakes between uh, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, Lake Erie, 
uh, that, that continue throughout the season. Uh, it is important that we move that commerce. Uh, I know there is uh, iron ore uh, move from uh, Escanaba, Michigan, down the lower lakes. There's steel coil moved from, from Sioux down, down to the lower lakes. There's salt uh, that's much needed uh, for road conditions up here in the Midwest, uh, moved from different various ports, uh, both on the U.S. and Canadian side to, to various uh, large cities. Um, so there's commerce that still moves on the Great Lakes, and then it's Coast Guard's responsibility uh, to uh, make sure that that commerce uh, is viable and can proceed. Thank you. Um, how is it that you actually became a Christmas tree Santa? Well, I would tell you that the, the modern Christmas tree ship um, started back in 2000. Um, there was uh, a group of uh, Chicagoans, uh, both from uh, the Navy League and the Shipmasters Association down there that uh, tried to get this started uh, back in the late uh, 1990s. Um, and the original thought was to have uh, a commercial ship um, bring uh, the, the trees in. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't viable, so they approached the Coast Guard uh, to see if uh, they'd be willing to, to do this. And, and that's where the, the, the Coast Guard Mac and all the, the Cutter Mac and all the original got involved uh, in her last couple of years. Um, and so she was the original Christmas tree ship, a modern Christmas tree ship. And then uh, with the replacement of the old Mackinac with the new Mackinac, they, they took over. Um, so um, I was the captain on the, the new Mackinac uh, from 2008 to 2011. Uh, and uh, was very blessed to have uh, participated in, in this uh, um, adventure. So we we um, have business uh, down uh, in in southern uh, Lake Michigan during this time of year. We do a lot of age navigation and pulling buoys uh, for the winter so that the large buoys with uh, expensive lights uh, on them uh, don't get crushed by the ice. And so we replaced a lot of those with winter marks. Uh, and so in, in doing that, we brought, uh, we were able to come down to uh, Lake Michigan in the pursuit of our, uh, our federal requirements uh, and, and be able to deliver those trees uh, at the same time. Wow, well, that's it's a great story. I, so who who pays for these trees? Um, and like, who? how do you get them and where do you put them on the boat? It's not like you have a hold in the same way. And um, I guess it's more symbolic, but how does that work? The Christmas Tree Organization, uh, and you can go to their website, it's called christmasship.org, um, pays for uh, the Christmas trees uh, through donations. Uh, it is, uh, um, they, they provide all the funding for the for the trees themselves. Um, and we carry between 1,500 or 1,200 and 1,500, I think our largest, the largest load was somewhere around 1,500 while I was on board. Uh, and um, have been doing this obviously over the last 20, 22 years. This is the 22nd year uh, that we did it early uh, this year. So they they collect donations. They pay for the trees. Um, they have used several um, uh, Christmas tree providers uh, over the la last two decades. Uh, and then uh, up until uh, recently, and, and I hope this continues, um, there were trees uh, that were cut down by um, Thompson Michigan um, folks uh, that, that uh, went out in, in the woods and cut these trees down, usually about 50 of them. Uh, and they would attach a personal note from their family to whatever deserving family in Chicago uh, got the tree itself. Uh, and to me, that was one of the most special parts uh, of this whole uh, um, event uh, was that connection between uh, the folks in, in the UP of Michigan and uh, the folks that got the trees in Chicago. And so we'd carry those as well as the other ones that were purchased from Christmas tree farms. Uh, we would load them on 
um, the old Mackinac would hand over hand them uh, up to the uh, to the stern of the vessel and, and uh, tie them on, use cargo nets. And, uh, as, as we got uh, busier with the multi-purpose uh, role of the new Mackinac, uh, we would have them delivered to the uh, to our moorings here there in Sheboygan, um, bundle them up and, and use a cargo net and the, the modern crane uh, to to lift them and hoist them uh, up to uh, the back deck of the Mackinac. So as we were working buoys on the buoy deck uh, on our way down, the trees would be stately, uh tucked away and nestled uh, back on the stern of the ship, and uh, that's where they're off from once we arrive in Chicago. Well, you know, um, uh, first of all, the, the fact that your guys are volunteering their time to also deal with the, the, sh- the Christmas trees is uh, is really sweet. Um, and then also the fact that you can combine, you know, a, 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 a wonderful nonprofit, you know, helping folks in Chicago with your usual business. I mean, it wasn't like you were going out of your way and you know, you just, well, we have to go down there. Let's take the take down. We got to go down and do buoy tending. Um, uh, let's take them down. So today, those uh, trees are are uh, handed out, uh, are donated, right, to families in need in Chicago? That, that's correct. So uh, we the Chicago Christmas Tree Ship Committee um, partners with Ada S. McKinley Community Services, uh, and they determine uh, who, which deserving families are going to get those Christmas tree ships. I think they started off with some something like 13 different partner organizations, and now they're up to 100 different partner organizations there in Chicago uh, that they that they help, um, and just a fantastic organization. Uh, and so the you know we 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 service the uh, the transportation mode uh, in the workforce labor, uh, along with I would say sea scouts and sea cadets uh, from Chicago help offload the trees as well. Uh, and there are a lot of different organizations that uh, that help during that time. Uh, using the Mackinac pulls in on Friday, um, folks from uh, multiple organizations come on board, including the Island Goat Society, uh, come come on board and help uh, light the ship up, uh, put lights on the ship and decorate the ship. Uh, and then the ship is available and open for uh, a couple of uh, kid tours uh, on the, of the ship itself. Um, obviously, the last couple of years have been a little bit different, but uh, hopefully, you know, wonderfully this year they were open allowed to open uh, the vessel up for some tours. And then the official ceremonies on Saturday morning. Where do you dock when you go to Chicago? Well, right at right at the, the west face on uh, Navy Pier. So all the way in, uh, just uh, um, just south of Navy Pier, uh, the, the, Christ, the Christmas new Christmas tree ship comes in and docks right there. That's wonderful, Doctor Karamansky. You talked about the Rouse Simmons and the history of the Rouse Simmons, and also indicated that um, she floundered. Uh, and uh, and sank. Could you tell us a little bit about that? The last tragic voyage of the Rouse Simmons or Chicago's Christmas tree ship uh, is the stuff of legend uh, because uh, the vessel was lost with all hands. And so why the vessel sank has been one of those sort of enduring mysteries uh, of the Great Lakes. Um, and the fact that she died uh, taking 17 souls with her, uh, underscored the tragedy uh, of her last voyage. Yeah, it is a sad ending to um, to a ship that, you know, um, is so much a part of maritime history. Um, very sad. It also does emphasize that the lakes are, are dangerous, and you got to know what you're doing when you sail them. We've talked about it before. 
And uh, let me just give a side mention to this, that just yesterday, um, uh, as a matter of fact, I was on a phone call with navigation folks that I work with um, in the government. And uh, one of your uh, successors on the Mackinac, Captain uh, Smith, uh, Captain John Stone, was on the phone. He's come back uh, uh, post-retirement doing navigation again. And he uh, first reminded me to say that he was actually the the best um, captain uh, and most important captain on the Mackinac. And why am I talking to you instead of him? But be that as it may. I said, well, uh, that's for another day. But he mentioned that uh, there was a prediction of 35-foot waves on Lake Superior because of extraordinary winds coming through. Now, I don't know if they made 35 feet, but when I talked to my brother, when we interviewed him, he said the largest wave he'd seen was 20 feet. And then Captain Stone said he saw an 18-footer on Superior. So just to kind of underscore how extraordinary the lakes are, and it uh, people think they're lakes, you know, kind of like just a lake, but they are Every bit as dangerous and challenging as an ocean. Um, so, so the Rouse Simmons sank, and I'm guessing that they really didn't know where she sank for a long hundred years. Uh, just to underscore what you just mentioned, Helen, uh, the men who uh, sailed the Christmas tree ships understood the danger that they were going through. There were a lot of Christmas tree ships that had sunk before uh, the Rouse Simmons. Uh, and indeed, um, August Juneman, who captained, one of the captains of the Rouse Simmons, he lost his brother um, in uh, 1898, uh, just off the shore of Glencoe, Illinois, the north suburb of Chicago, uh, uh, on a Christmas tree ship that sank with all hands. Uh, so sailing the lakes in November, December was literally participating in a lottery of death. Uh, but the profits could be considerable. You could get a Christmas tree either bought from the local people or cut yourself for like a penny or two uh, in cost and then sell it in Chicago for 75 cents. Uh, so they were in the position to be able to make several thousand dollars uh, to keep alive a tradition that was uh, very much valued, particularly by the German-American community in Chicago. But they understood that this was highly risky. So when did the Rouse Simmons sink and when was sh- the, uh, the uh, shipwreck discovered? So while the vessel sank uh, either on the 22nd or 23rd of November 1912, um, and there were all sorts of reports about maybe there were survivors, there were people who claimed to have been survivors, there was a message found in a bottle from someone who was on the vessel talking about the distress it was in that may have been uh, erroneous uh, and fabricated. but it wasn't until 1971 uh, that uh, a recreational diver, actually looking for another vessel that had sunk, uh, discovered the Rouse Simmons. And what did he find in the hold of the vessel? But the complete cargo of Christmas, tree sh- Christmas trees that had been loaded way back in 1912. Well, I think that's because of the fresh water, right? Or was it so deep and no oxygen down there? Like how far down was she found? She was in about 150 feet of water. Wow. Did the wreckage give any clues as to how she sank? Or? 
Regrettably, nothing conclusive. Certainly, the wreckage has been gone over by many of other divers since that time. And, uh, you know, we, we just haven't been able to do a conclusive uh, forensic analysis that, that helps us. But most likely, this was a vessel that was not in the most seaworthy condition to begin with. Um, and Captain um, Schooneman, uh made the mistake of extending the deck house on the vessel to be able to carry more Christmas trees, in addition to piling Christmas trees then on this deck house. There was a fear that the vessel was going to be top heavy. Uh, and you talk about some of those waves that we know can happen on Lake Michigan, 15, 18 feet high. Uh, that would have put the vessel in a really precarious position. Whereabouts is the wreckage? I mean, in like what part of Lake Michigan? So this would be around two rivers, uh, Wisconsin. So in the area, say around Manitowoc, at the base, near the base of the Dora Peninsula. Um, and it's an area that has recently been uh, established by uh, uh, the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration as an underwater refuge because of all the shipwrecks that lie on the bottom of Lake Michigan in that area. Yeah, um, I read that and I, I kind of want to have those folks on to talk about shipwrecks and that whole sanctuary there. Um, in the the last podcast, uh, Lighthouse, we talked about Door County uh, and that whole Devil's Triangle of area that's pretty dangerous and why you needed lighthouses, obviously, uh, why it was so treacherous. Now, whether that is um, where the ship sank, it, you know, I guess the point is, is that um, it is... It, it, you know, you had to really want to do that business. It's not for the faint of heart. I think even today being a, a merchant mariner is not for the faint of heart, um, uh, but it's an important work. Um, and um, um, But obviously um, modifying the boat didn't, may have been, may have contributed. And also though, um, it's sad because at that point then, didn't the whole Christmas tree ship tradition kind of end at that point? Uh, not quite. Um after losing her brother-in-law and husband to Christmas trees, uh, Barbara Schooneman, uh, August Schooneman's widow, kept the tradition alive. Uh, and a couple of times she brought in schooners, but mainly she began to bring the Christmas trees to Chicago by rail and then sell them from the deck of schooners. And she continued this business with her daughters till 1933. Wow. So now was this schooner, the deck of the schooner that they used, that they, it was just a schooner that was there all the time and it became the background for selling Christmas trees? Or was it a ship that was applying the trade and somehow, how did that, how did, was it a ship that was always there or a ship in business? Well, by this, by the time we get to the 1920s and 30s, uh, in the backwaters of the port of Chicago up the North Branch or South Branch of the Chicago River, uh, there were a lot of derelict schooners. Uh, that really uh, owners had abandoned, uh, but not quite. Uh, and every once in a while, the Port Authority would have to take some of these derelict vessels out into Lake Michigan and just sink them so that they weren't, you know, clogging up space along the river. So there were plenty of schooners that uh, could be towed into place um, and would pass for being a seaworthy vessel. 
Yeah, I, I get that. And, and of course, uh, you know, we, we talked about how um, it was amazing how even in the um, in the early 1900s, you still had the sailing ships, even still going through the Welland Canal, <laughs> just to get from Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. And uh, that's you're trying to imagine what that looked like and how they did it. Um, so, so Scott, um, you just recently went to a Christmas tree. You kind of talked about this a little bit ceremony in Chicago. When was that? And is that an annual thing? It, it definitely is an annual thing. I've been privileged to uh, since I'm Work and live closely uh, to Chicago. Been able to uh, go there a couple of times. It's the first Saturday uh, in December. Uh, the official ceremony is about ten o'clock, uh, right there at Navy Pier, um, and they have a wonderful ceremony um, attended by uh, well, quite a few quite a few people. It's a great crowd this year, uh, even, even through uh, the issues we're dealing with. Um, you know, they have uh, the the Coast Guard uh, Academy uh, Glee Club was there uh, to, to to sing it, uh, provide it. Entertainment, as well as Lee Mur- Murdoch, who's the official balladeer uh, of uh, the Christmas tree ship, um, and and they have a wonderful ceremony uh, there to uh, to hand off the trees uh, between uh, the U.S. Coast Guard Christmas tree committee and the uh, uh, A.S. McKinley uh, Community Services. Uh, so it is it is an annual event, um, as well as uh, on the trip down. And this is a little known thing that, that we do, and, and being being mariners, obviously on the Mackinac is. Is uh, once we've departed um, northern Lake Michigan, uh, we uh, take uh, some boughs that we uh, gather, uh, which sometimes fall off uh, with, with loading the trees. We and we usually form a wreath um, that we uh, stop at uh, the last known uh, position or where the Ralph Simmons went down, uh, and we hold a small uh, solemn ceremony uh, for those uh, souls that lost uh, back in 1912, and then we continue our, our drive. Wow, that's a lovely tradition. As you mentioned, uh, you can find out more about that at christmasship.org, which is a great site, and you can see the folks uh, from Coast Guard. Um, And on the front, there's a really great picture of the Mackinac docked at Navy Pier. Um, And um, if people want to learn more about the Mackinac, where would they go, Scott? And where is she, the current Mackinac, where is she uh, homeported? So she is homeported in Sheboygan, Michigan. Uh, Sheboygan went to sea. Uh, and up in the top of the mitt, uh, up up there in, uh, in the lower part of Michigan, uh, that's where the old Mackinac was home ported. That's where the current Mackinac is home ported. Uh, and she can go to the Coast Guard website uh, to uh, to learn uh, more about that ship and, and its unique uh, capabilities and crew. That's great. Um, so, um, um, what do you what are you doing these days to keep yourself busy? Uh, keeping myself busy. So I am uh, employed by uh, Hornblower Group, which is uh, uh, a uh, leader for uh, both uh, uh, excursions, um, waterborne excursions, and uh, transportation uh, in, in the U.S., uh, Canada, and uh, U.K. We have uh, vessels there. I've, I've now got 227 vessels that uh, I help uh, uh, run and, and uh, make sure that uh, they're all uh, safe uh, on the maritime side of that, I'm the senior vice president for marine, marine operations. Uh, so, it, uh, including uh, vessels in Chicago. Uh, so, we have the Odysseys and the Spirits, uh, as well as the Sea Dogs uh, there in Chicago. Well, they got the right operations guy and uh, to to do to run all of those ships. So, uh, happy for them and happy for you, um, Dr. Karamansky. Could you just uh, you know, as we begin to close this podcast. Um, you know, what is, what kind of the, um, how would you express 
um, how maritime history, you know, um, what it's done for the lakes or Chicago and, and uh, what do you think its future is today? I think that maritime history plays a valuable role in creating a sense of community for the towns and cities that are along the lake. Um, it's a reminder of their, their reason for existence, uh, their origin. Um, and it, the lakes are not just, today, recreation dominates our perception uh, of the lakes, uh, but that there was this earlier uh, tradition in which they were absolutely central uh, to the economy of the region uh, and even to the fate of the nation when you think of the tremendous contribution that the Great Lakes uh, maritime and shoreline industries had in winning World War II. So uh, things like the lighthouses that survive um, and uh, the harbors, which are now used for recreation, uh, I think they become places of memory uh, where uh, this connection can be nurtured. And important in that same, uh, for that same reason, are the region's maritime museums. There's so many wonderful small maritime museums uh, around the Great Lakes. And I would encourage all your readers uh, to come to the south side of Chicago on the south branch of the Chicago River, where the Chicago Maritime Museum is located. Uh, we have a model of the Christmas tree ship there. We have Charles Vickery's uh, 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 paintings of the ship, uh, as well as uh, a lot of other interesting exhibits that I'm sure would engage them if they're interested in the lakes. Thank you. Um, and is there a website for that? Absolutely. Just Google Chicago Maritime Museum, uh, and uh, that search engine will take you right to our website uh, with hours of operation, uh, or you can enjoy uh, the many things we have loaded on the website. Now that yeah, it's it's very interactive and it's terrific. Now I wanted I wanted to give you a plug for all of the books you've written, but I have to confess there's a lot of them. All you got to do is Google uh, Dr. Theodore uh, Karamansky, and even on Amazon, uh, Amazon there must be a dozen that come up. But sir, I did want to note that you've also written a couple of books about Native Americans and regional uh, uh, um, uh, communities. I really hope you can come back to talk about that a little bit sometime because I think I really do want to spend a little more time talking about the Native Americans and history in the Great Lakes. I'd be happy to do it. Um, Dr. Karamansky, Captain Smith, thank you so much for joining us. This wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes. Thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting us and Tyler Buckingham for being a great partner. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The conversation and opinions expressed on North Coast Chronicles do not necessarily represent the opinion of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time when we are joined by the premier interpreter of songs and tales about the Great Lakes singer-musician Lee Murdoch. Lee will help us discover the drama and inspiration in the lives of sailors and fishermen, lighthouse keepers, ghosts, shipwrecks, outlaws, and everyday heroes of the Great Lakes. Until then, be good to one another. <laughs>